Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center. It sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 202. Uh, We're cutting this just a little before Valentine's Day, so we have got a great episode for you. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. we got lots of fun and informative interviews for a jam-packed episode. We've got uh, the fabulous Divas of Broadway and a live performance in studio from that as well. We also talk with... uh, the show straight up with a twist. Knock him dead. Hear about Roy Arias Studios, who's a new sponsor for us. Thank you very much. Um, we're also going to hear from Marty on the positive side. Talk about the encore's presentation of applause. We're going to hear a live performance and interview with the new musical Glimpses of the Moon playing at the Algonquin. We've got the author and actor, lead actor of Gray Area, a show about Civil War reenactors, and I tell you, lots of information in that. Um, we're also going to hear from the off-Broadway show, The Providence. So it's a jam-packed episode. Uh, Remember, I let everybody know that I think there's some confusion about how to get Act 2 of the double episode, so we're just combining them all into one big, long episode. I hope that's not a problem for anybody. If it is, just drop me a note at info at broadwaybullet.com. Um, And remember, if you're listening on iTunes or on your iPod, it remembers where you were. So you don't have to listen to this whole big, long show at once. If you stop and come back to it, it'll remember where you were. So uh, hopefully that that makes it a little bit easier to get all the information now that we're on a bi-monthly schedule. So, um, well, I'm not going to talk too much longer because we got a jam-packed show. And let's hop into the interviews. On the Boards. I know that everybody has been waiting for the opportunity to catch all of the fabulous divas of Broadway on stage at one time. And beginning February 13th, you do have a chance to catch all the fabulous divas of Broadway played by Alan Palmer. And he's here in the studio to to sing a little bit for us and to talk about the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Michael. All right. So fabulous divas of Broadway. Uh, and, and I understand you wrote this and kind of put this all together. So what what was your impetus? What what made you decide to put this together? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I, I, I had originally started this process uh, years back. Um, I, my, my whole life has been an underscore. The, my, everybody that knew me when I was growing up always said my life's a musical to me, and it truthfully is. And um, uh, the other thing was necessity. Uh, I, I owned a theater out in... Um, 
Los Angeles in Sherman Oaks, and um, we were trying to keep the doors open, so I pulled this uh, out of my hat and uh, put it together in two weeks, the first draft of this show. And um, and the weirdest thing, as soon as I put it online, uh, it sold out within the first week. So we were. Well, happy I would have thought owning that. a theater in Los Angeles would be like having a snow cone stand in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true because uh, most people are interested in film and not theater, and there's one on every corner, but it's a little scary. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's the reason why I put this together. I've been having a great time doing it. And, and you know, it's more self-indulgence. It's either doing that or singing in front of a mirror with my uh, towel around my head. Now, I'm guessing that there's a lot of costumes involved here? Or? There are a mess load of costumes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Bucky, he uh, designed a lot of these things, and, and they're just absolutely beautiful costumes. The, 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 the whole idea for this show is just giving um, certain nuances of these characters. It's not trying to replicate every one of these people. I'm not a drag queen per se. You know what I mean? I, the, before this show, I've never dressed in women's clothing, and now you can't get me out of it. <laughs> but um, uh, but uh, the costumes are absolutely gorgeous in this show, and, and, and the set as well. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece, and I feel, so, I feel like I'm back in my basement again, where my father had built my first stage and put three seats in the basement so but I could put on shows for my my friends, um, so it's it's a great place to be working right now. So you, you said you hadn't worn a dress before this production. No. So I'm kind of curious with all of the dresses I'm sure involved in this. What what was the hardest thing to adapt to? Um, probably the heels. <laughs> yeah, and and I couldn't find anything shorter, so I've got. I think three-inch heels that are killing me. But, I, I don't uh, understand heels. I had a <laughs> I had a friend who I had a who wanted me to pick up a big pair of size thirteen, those spike heels, <laughs> you know, because he lived in Montana and couldn't find them anywhere. And so I got them for him, and and I just decided to try them on myself before <laughs> well, sending them. Did. <laughs> and and I'm like, oh my god, how do people walk in these? I was like, my knees were all bent, and I felt <laughs> like it, it was like an, I'm like stunned. I, I love that. Kudos so to the funny. women. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And to dance in them and all that, you know, th- there's there's definitely an art to it. And the the funny thing is, anytime I'm directing a show, I will put people in costumes galore and have them change costumes. But when I'm doing a show, the two things I hate most are costume changes and makeup because normally I don't even wear makeup on stage. So this one I have a ton of makeup. Um, I have a spackle gun that just kind of puts it all over and um, and uh, the costumes. There's, I mean, it's it's a constant costume change. And um, thank goodness Curtis knew some great ways of um, of getting around certain things and uh, to get them on faster because I've got a mess lot of quick changes in the show. And we do them on stage as well and a ton of wigs. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> well, maybe we should take a pause for here for a second, and uh, you can perform one of the numbers from the show. That sounds Do good. Do you know which one you used to want to start off well, with? Well, why don't we start off with Carol Channing, because she's always a favorite. I end the show with Carol Channing, but you know what? Let's start with All right. So you ready to sing? Yes, of course. A kiss on the hand might be quite continental. But diamonds are a girl's best friend A kiss may be grand But it won't pay the rental on your humble flat 
or help you at the automat. Love grows cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shaped, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Diamonds, diamonds. I don't mean rhinestones. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. I mean, your performance of this is very fun and funny, but I got to say to the listeners, I mean, easily half of the fun is watching you do this. So uh, I, I understand we're going to get a chance to uh, come take a sneak peek in with the video cameras to your performance and, Absolutely. and get that up on the website. We do it here, but I, I, again, I think it'd probably be a lot more fun to capture the, the cost. So much fun, yeah. <laughs> your makeup on the thing. You, you, you didn't make a... Well, maybe you did make a pretty Carol Channing here without the. Well, you know, and that's th- that's the thing I'm trying to go through right now. I'm trying to r- figure out whether I should do her old uh, Lorelai blonde, or if I should go to what she's what she is now, more of that platinum blonde. Uh, <laughs> okay, so. you will call it that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've been shopping for new wigs for for that, and we've actually added to to that song as well. We uh, well, it's a kind of a surprise. It's the big ending of a show. We even have chorus boys. Considering it's a one-man show, that's pretty hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> and gotten carried away. I don't want to give short shrift. Uh, who is the gentleman playing piano with you on that last oh, song? That's here? Curtis Jerome. He's a musical director. He's awesome, right? <laughs> so, in addition to uh, Doctor Ruth, Carol Channing, uh, Judge Judy <laughs> in the song, who are some of the other ladies that might be appearing here in Fabulous Divas of Broadway? Oh, we've got Barbara Streisand, uh, Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland, uh, all the new divas. Kristen Ebersol, Kristen Chenoweth, uh, oh, anyone you can, Beth Level, anyone you can think of, it's probably there. And if we haven't got her yet, we'll get her in there soon. So what was your process in picking the songs and uh, and how much of the songs are stayed intact and how much have you, have you re-changed any of the lyrics of the songs around? Or well, it, it's funny. Um, <clears throat> we've changed the show so much. I keep saying we. Um, <laughs> I keep on... Uh, I've, I've changed the show a bunch. Uh, Schizophrenic people often say we. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've got a lot of people standing around me. Um, and uh, But the, I, I, I would see what worked and what didn't work and what's interesting is uh, the things that didn't work in L.A., the things that I totally knew would work in New York definitely didn't work in in Los Angeles for instance Bernadette Peters they're like who? Uh, exactly she's like got a Q rating of 12 <laughs> <laughs> and she and and I sing Time Hills Everything now who doesn't know Time Hills Everything from Mac and Mabel and everyone and Every single solitary comment I ha- had was, "Why did you do that, girl with the time?" And 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 that, why do you pick obscure songs like that? Well, the, the reason being is because that's my diva of divas. But unfortunately, so um, so she's 
currently in the show, but not really. We're, we do a Name That Tune segment in the show, Name That Diva segment, and uh, and which is really fun. And so people get to guess um, some some of the divas that I'm doing. In L.A., was everybody going, Liza, Liza, <laughs> Liza? <laughs> the funniest thing is everyone kept guessing the movie version of every one of them, too, and I kept going, not the movie. So finally I was like, oh, do the movie or the play, whatever. Let's just get this done. <laughs> And then the other one is uh, Gwen Verdon or Anne Ranking. We have to decide which one is which as well. I love both of them equally, but they become one. <laughs> now, as you said, you know, you made changes in work, and this is a one-man show, and you've done a lot of the creation. But um, who are some of the people you rely on most for feedback and in? Oh, my family, this. my family especially, my partner is extremely tough on me. Like, it, it, I, I have to throw it to someone else after him because usually he's like, no, no. <laughs> and I'll just see one more person. Uh, his, his, he, he likes more of the dramatic sort of things. So, um, but I throw it to him and I throw it to everyone I know. Anyone that will listen to me, I'll go, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And I'm always super insecure about everything that I do until until I actually perform it and see if it, it does sell or not. So this the, uh, the number that we're going to do later is one of those instances where I keep going, I think this is just not working, and everyone around says, no, 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 it works, it works. So, so we're trying that out for the first time out here in New York, which will be fun. Well, why don't we, why don't we do that number? All right, that sounds great. Okay. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about it. All right. You know, when I started putting this show together, I started thinking of all the incredible divas that have played on Broadway. And then it got me to thinking, what women I thought would be less likely to play on Broadway or Broadway again? Uh, I thought it would be fun to put all those diva women in their own right into a Broadway musical. The song I thought would be most appropriate for the occasion would be Send in the Clowns from Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music. A little selection I like to call... You've no business in show business. And then I started casting. I started with Dr. Ruth. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground? Legs in the air? Sending the clowns. Judge Judy. Isn't this rich? I don't approve. What are you, stupid? You thought that he'd want what you want? Sorry, my dear. Listen, beauty fades, dumbest forever. Get out of here, clowns. Just when I stopped Chair Opening doors Finally knowing the one That I wanted was yours Catherine Hepburn Making my entrance again With my usual flair Sure of my line There's anyone there Joan Rivers. Oh, don't you love fast? Oh, can we talk here? Ma, oh, what are you queer? 
Oh, I can't believe it. You are the worst dressed actress. Oh, can we talk? Melissa, look at this. <gasps> Sorry, my dear. Who did these gowns? A couple of clowns? Oh, please. Send in the clowns. Don't bother. They're here. Oh, please. <laughs> Betty Davis. Isn't it rich? Isn't it queer? Losing my timing this late in my career? Where are the clowns? Send in the clowns. Don't bother. They're here. Again, like I said, clearly something that people really are missing half the performance with not seeing your face, although you do some great impressions. Well, but, thank you. Uh, <laughs> now, what was the hunt for a theater space in New York like to find? Well, this is, and this is an open run, right? This it, is, it, it is. You haven't yeah. scheduled to end in. No, I mean, no. I still say get right away because with an open run doesn't mean it's running for That's right. as long as cats. Right. It means you're right. running as long as people Get out come. today because it's easier to get them in the beginning than it is later. Um, uh, yeah. I, I'd worked with uh, Ed Gaines before in uh, Los Angeles. He owns a theater out there. He used to own a few theaters out there. And now he runs some some theaters out here as well. And uh, he got to talking with me and said, hey, do you want to bring this out? And um, and he he runs four, four theaters out here. And the only one that I ever wanted to do anything in was St. Luke's. So I said, well, if we can do it at St. Luke's, then yeah, definitely. So that's how we... No, I understand there are a few things you had to work around. Insane. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it, I have, first of all, it, it makes you humble, and and um, it is the greatest little space. However, there's a soup kitchen uh, two times a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, and uh, once a month they have a. Uh, is there a de- is there a deal? Get soup and a show. That's right. They should have dinner theater <laughs> there, shouldn't they? <laughs> I guess Bernie's Bar Mitzvah used to be in there, so it was pretty good for that sort of a show. Um, but for this show, it makes it a little difficult. Um, and then they do a flea market uh, once a month, so uh, there's all these clo- clothes sitting around. So we have to make sure our costumes are put away so they don't sell. Lots you ever of find? <laughs> have you found any costumes in those clothes? Uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> when we were loading in, I was like, "Oh, this would be an awesome dress for certain things." But um, no, we didn't. We didn't use them. But I'm. I have to wonder to myself. These are these are uh, people that you know are living you know, uh, on the streets, and I kind of wonder what profession they would need a sequin gown for, you know, if, they, if they're on the streets, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so it's kind of a, it's a really exciting thing, and as soon as we get finished with the, uh, all the technical stuff that we need to get done with this, I'm excited to actually help out with the soup kitchen, because it's a really cool cause. I got to meet uh, one of the ladies today that's in charge of it, and she had the most incredible stories that I, I just love hearing people's stories, and I think that's the whole process for the show, is, is listening to people tell these stories of life, because everybody has such fascinating lives. And um, so she got me excited about doing the soup kitchen as soon as this show starts, uh, gets open and on its feet, I'm going to start volunteering there as well. 
Now, besides obviously being a one-man show, you're having a lot to do. I mean, are you producing this? I know you're having a lot to do well, with it, but are you also officially co- co- producing kind it? Kind of co-producing it, and um, the thing is, um, when, when you try to do smaller-budget shows like this— um, on a high-end scale, you um, you tend to do whatever it takes to get the show done, uh, whether it is painting sets and, and everyone that's here with me, friends, uh, the, the uh, musical director, uh, <laughs> costume designer, everybody, everybody's all helping out, pitching in, making it so that it it looks like a million dollar show but um, but we we did it on a, a song <laughs> well, what do you think was the most surprising thing uh, difficulty wise that came up in in mounting this and um, well we, we I flew out here a few times to try to make sure that I knew exactly what the space was like and I think the surprising thing is once you get in there you're not ready for any of it uh, it, it all changes we, we measured perfectly we we, we saw how the lighting plot was for the last show and they pulled out all the the cords and and went back to square one with it so we had to start from scratch and um, our proscenium didn't fit so we had to build a new proscenium and and all those kind of things we just we thought we had it down to to the fine nuances and it you're never prepared for it you know but um, the one thing that I will say what was incredibly surprising is when you're doing something like this it's amazing how many wonderful friends there are out there that really help make the show it, it's such a cool experience I wish everyone in show business could have um, the experience of a really cool friendship of community that that every person that you know has such a special skill and talent that it makes it really great oh <laughs> I've got my Barbara Walters moment <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're welling so, up. It's fun. It's 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 that's the greatest thing is to see how many friends you have out there that are willing to, you know, pitch in and put sweat and tears to it. So it's it's fun. It's great. Well, it certainly sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and uh, a lot of late nights. So the previews start February 13th mm-hmm. and officially opens on the 27th. Yeah. And St. Luke's is located where? On 46th Street between 8th and 9th, closer to 8th Avenue. Yeah, so they don't, people don't even have to really, you know, leave their comfort zone. That's right. And you know what? And it's on Restaurant Row, so you can go eat beforehand right there and just walk across wherever you are and come right to the theater. It's a great location. It's an awesome location. And a fun. it's a fun theater, too. It's, it's very intimate. Uh, it's 175 to 200 seats, uh, depending on the night. And um, it, it's... it's it's, it's a quite a, a, a charming little space. And depending on the size of the patrons? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're planning on 200 a night. <laughs> so um, yeah, where, where can people go for tickets and to find out more information uh, on the they show? They can call Telecharge. Uh, go on the website, www.fabdivas.com. You can, get, you can direct, uh, click directly onto the link there to purchase tickets. You can go to the box office at St. Luke's, 308 West 46th Street. Uh, or call me. <laughs> no, I don't think they can do that. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck as you finish up your tech preparations here. And Thank I you so much. Look forward to getting some footage of you on stage that we can put in our player on our I'm website. I'm looking forward to that as well. <laughs> and, I, and I think the audience should be waiting for that because, like I said, they really are missing a lot here. In the, yeah, as great as it is, they're they're missing all the all the great nuance on your face. So. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it, Michael. 
All right. Well, Alan Palmer, thanks a lot for stopping by. And uh, Thanks a lot. I look forward to seeing you there. And uh, don't break a leg in the heels. I <laughs> <laughs> just smart. The Call Board. All right. As for the ongoing uh, thing with our mailing list, do keep signing up. I want to let everybody know what's going on. Um, we're trying to find a mailing service that can actually send out a bulk email that isn't costing an arm and a leg um, because, quite frankly, budget is tight. We're not bringing in a whole lot of money for this. And, and uh, as I mentioned before, we're doing Cupid, the musical, which uh, is definitely sapping up a lot of resources. So I'm trying to find a solution so we can do mailing lists and then we can do more contests and giveaways and, and such. Uh, so if you have a suggestion, if you know of a service that works well and is uh, really cheap, uh, you can email me at info at broadwaybullet.com. Also, just want to let everybody know we had final callbacks for Cupid, the musical that we're doing for YouTube last night. We got a great cast assembled. Uh, I'll be announcing the cast shortly, and um, we'll be uh, putting up probably a teaser, some of the some of the you know their screen tests and the callback footage and stuff, just to give everybody a little sneak peek into what's going to be happening with Cupid, and that'll be in our video player coming up uh, shortly. So um, I'm very excited. Um, I, I hope you're looking forward to it. It's going to be filming in uh, end of April, and we're going to be releasing it in August, so that's a little bit down the road. Um, but let's get into some of the other notices we have for the call board. Uh, Next to Normal opens on February 13th. Uh, that's tonight, as I'm cutting it, on Second Stages Theater. The new Tom Kitt musical, which is a transfer for the New York Musical Theater Festival, and will have its off-Broadway premiere at Second Stages in New York on Wednesday, the 13th of February. The cast includes Alice Ripley and Brian Darcy James, two parents trying to keep their world in one piece, and the production is directed by Michael Grief. Playbill Radio will be rebroadcasting the virtual opening night of Disney's The Little Mermaid. The broadcast will feature the original cast recording in full, as well as behind-the-scenes interviews with the cast, crew, and creative staff for the musical. Virtual opening night will be rebroadcast on Playbill Radio on February 25th at 2 p.m. So you got plenty of time to set your dial. Jill Pace and Darius Dinesh went into rehearsals this week for Trevor Nunn's West, ah, West End-bound musical version of Gone with the Wind. The new musical adaptation of the iconic film from the late 30s is set to open in London at the end of April. There is no word yet as to whether the production, which is scheduled until the end of September, will make a Broadway transfer. Also, I'd like to welcome on, we got a, a new sponsor, uh, Roy Arias Studios. Um, he's actually doing quite a generous trade with us for the massive amount of rehearsal time we need to get Cupid ready. Uh, get, they got great rehearsal space. I'm pleased to be using them. They're right here in the building, so that makes it very easy for me. But So Roy Arias Studios is the sponsor of the call board for a little bit. A little bit of information about them. They're located in the heart of the theater district in uh, one of New York's most uniquely arranged off-and-off-Broadway venues. Their equity-approved stages in the recently renovated Times Square Arts Center has endless accessibility with the Port Authority, Penn Station, and all other transportation options at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. Their staff consists of a group of artistic professionals with various backgrounds, and they share one special passion, and that is your love for the theater arts. They've got tons of rehearsal and uh, performance stages, and you can feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios if you'd like to check out the spaces. So again, thank you very much to Roy Arias Studios, and we look forward to having you on as a sponsor and hope you can help out a lot of the the people out there who are looking for rehearsal space and performance space. And I'd like to remind everybody that I do recording, I produce, whatever you're kind of looking to do, I can help you out, whether it's a simple piano vocal for uh, an audition, 
or a demo reel, or if you're pop rock, R&B, do a little bit of everything. Got some reasonable rates, and again, very conveniently located in New York City. So you can give me a buzz at 646-345-3433 or drop me an email at info at broadwaybullet.com if you or you know somebody who is interested in doing a little bit of recording. On the boards. What do you do when you're a straight guy that, due to your uh, tastes, everybody tends to think you're gay? Well, <laughs> well, that's addressed in a new one-person play, straight up with a twist. Well, I guess it's not exactly that new, but uh, actor-writer Paul Strolley is here to talk about the show and uh, all his experiences that made up straight up with a twist. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be here, Michael. Now, you said that the, the play was inspired by a something your wife told you. Yes, yes. Actually, my wife spent a lot of time trying to find... I, I understand this is pretty common. My wife spent a lot of time trying to find the perfect wedding dress and uh, had a whole lot of trouble. Why, uh, her brought her mom, brought her sisters, all these people. And then she decided to bring me with her. First one I picked was the one that she wore for the wedding. And uh, it inspired her to make the comment that actually inspired the whole show, which is, you know, Paul, I'm so lucky to have found you. You're like this gay friend I can have sex with. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, <laughs> as, a, as a straight guy... That comment is like right up there with my what an adorable penis as far as <laughs> really what you don't want to hear. Um, and yeah, but it just started me thinking about this whole sort of uh, group of uh, straight guys that I thought were overlooked. It, it was always like you're either you're either uh, a knuckle dragger, you know, caveman type, or you know something else. So so the whole idea was that this is a, you know, a, a, a section of straight maildom that was overlooked. Well, well, I know for instance that many people are we had a survey, you know, like about a year ago with the with the podcast and and all the PR people were absolutely stunned when I told them that we actually have a quite large percentage of straight men listening to the show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do have a large percentage of gay men too, but but people were just stunned that it was about half and half. Yeah, and <laughs> you know what's interesting about the show is that the the it's really less about straight versus gay than it's more about the um, the whole misfit aspect of things, uh, about just being someone who doesn't fit that mold. Like the the assumption that I mentioned already, the you know that all straight men are these knuckle draggers, is just as you know inaccurate as all gay men have one type of predilection you know so that it's really about labels and and calling attention to these you know untrue stereotypes you know the the whole metrosexual thing is sort of kicked up you know some interest in the show because it's similar but it's not really the same because um my whole premise of the type of male in my show, which I call Renaissance geeks, I call these guys <laughs> Renaissance geeks, that um, they actually wanted to, they they fell victim to the women's movement of the mid '80s, which is the Alan oh, Alda thing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're one of us, man. You're one of us. That's it. The Alan Alda thing. Oh, they want us to be sensitive. Oh, oh, they want us to be sensitive. Well, I'll be sensitive. I'll learn and I'll respect your feelings and I'll learn about you and we can we can cuddle and we can talk. And why? Wait, wait. She's not home. Why isn't she home? Oh, she's fucking the rugby player. Oh, <laughs> so they changed their minds on us. They said we want you to be sensitive. So go. Learn that and we went we learned and then we came back because look what we know and they're like oh that's great but you know what we really weren't interested in that but thanks I think Alan Alda <laughs> was the only one who got laid being like Alan Alda <laughs> 
So, so it's one thing taking this idea of a, of a concept that we haven't seen, but what what process was it for you actually stringing it together into like a narrative or a cohesive theater piece? Well, it's interesting that you ask. I I had written it almost as a stand-up piece initially, um, and there was a, there's a great actress who lives in uh, in Los Angeles now. I've worked with her for a long time. Her name is Cassie Harlow, and she's a just a, a truly uh, gifted performer. She and I did did Tony and Tina's wedding in Chicago for about a year. She played my wife in that, and um, I shared the show with her early on. And uh, also my friend Cindy Katz, who's actually uh, performing um, 2,000 Years right now, uh, just got a great review in that. But the two of them were the one, along with my wife, were the two that, uh, the three that said, you know, you wrote this as stand-up, but you do characters. So rather than talk about your mother, talk about your father, talk about your brother, play them. And it, it just, I, I scrapped the whole first script and then I went and rewrote the whole thing where instead of telling the stories, I just enacted the stories. So I play, I think the last count was nine, ten different characters. And uh, it's much more interesting as an audience to just see the events happen rather than be told them in anecdotal style, you know. And that was basically how it, how it got built. Is there maybe like a short piece that you think would be appropriate audio only that you could that you could pull and and give an example? Well, here? The, well I could give you a little bit of everybody actually. We can, <laughs> right. We'll, we'll, we'll start. I, I can bring my father in, and my father uh, when he comes out he says, um, "It was difficult for me to raise Paul because he is not what I expected. I had hoped that both of my sons would be boys." <laughs> And uh, my brother has one of my favorite lines in the show, which is like, you know, we go to St. Rock's Feast up in Porchester, right? We're waiting to get online to tilt the world. This chick walks by in these tight white shorts, right? Paul turns to me, says, hey, I wouldn't kick her out of bed for wearing white after Labor Day. I still don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> and then uh, my mother my mother has a great line early on. She's uh She's describing this support group that she started, and she says, um, All right, let's get this right out of the way. My son is not a gay. That would make things far too easy. But see, I'm not alone. I know there are other mothers out there in a very similar situation to mine. So many, in fact, that I've begun hosting this, well, it's an informal support group at my home. We call ourselves MAFO. It's like SAFO, except with an M. M-A-P-H-O. Mothers who would actually prefer homosexual offspring. So that's three of them anyway. <laughs> so now uh, I understand you did a lot of like day playing and stuff in, in film and TV and stuff. Yeah. That's kind of the impetus behind what, what were what was some of the work oh, you've done? So I, was on, I did a Seinfeld. I did Malcolm in the Middle. I did um, a lot of movies of the week, uh, if four is a lot. Uh, <laughs> just realized when I said that. Eh, okay, maybe not a lot. Um, I did a. I, I actually did a movie a uh, long time ago with Roger Daltrey uh, called Cold Justice, and I only bring it up because because you know I would like to thank both people who saw it, <laughs> but also um, the fact that I talk about it in the show because it was it was all really exciting that I got this movie, you know. And my father went to see the movie, and he was just like, oh, my son's in a movie, my son's in a movie. No one told him that uh, 
I play a gay hustler in the prison who tries to fuck Roger Daltrey. So, you know, that's uh, it was it was hardly the proud moment he expected it to be. <laughs> so, um, so what about all this prompted you into into doing the show? And I understand this has had a long history. You've actually been doing this eight years now. Yeah, in different incarnations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure I understand, but prompted it. Okay, I mean. W- from doing the theater and commercial and, and oh. the, the stuff oh, you're oh, doing oh, your one, one person um, show. Oh, no, the thing was, it's just like any actor in L.A. or New York or, or anywhere, really. Uh, you know, when the work is not 100%, you know, keeping you, when you're not, you know, working all the time, which, you know, 99% of actors are not working all of the time, you know, you just find some some creative thing. And I had always wanted to write. I had... I'd co-written with a group in Chicago for years um, called uh, The Illegitimate Players, and uh, I, I worked with them, but, but I didn't write anything um, on my own with them. It was, it was very collaborative there, a great group of people based out of Chicago. And uh, the, um, so I just wrote the show, and my friend Bill Penton, who actually is the director of the show, uh, he was managing a theater in Culver City, California, called the Gascon Theater. And he said, you know what? Bring it here. Let's do it as a dark night piece, you know, on someone else's set with someone else's lighting. And we did that in, in 1999. The show was called Renaissance Geek back then. And uh, we planned to do eight performances, and uh, eight performances has now evolved into eight years. So uh, we're, we're just delighted. We're delighted to be at the Players now. And this is the first time you come to New York with this? First time to New York City, yeah. We did uh, a, a number of benefits in, out on Long Island with the, uh, for a group called Group for the South Fork and uh, as fundraisers for them. And I've done uh, Stanford and Connecticut and different uh, smaller theaters, Ridgefield, Connecticut, where I'm from. And we were in Chicago, and we were in uh, Scranton and Pennsylvania, a bunch of different places, but mostly for short weekend runs. But now we are delighted to be at the Players Theater at 115 McDougal Street in the heart of Greenwich Village. Have you noticed anything different about a New York City theater audience versus uh, some of the other places you performed uh, at? It's really cool because... None of us really realized, my wife, uh, my, um, the producers, all, all these people involved, it, it didn't really occur to any of us that uh, the characters would be even more embraced here because I, I did it in L.A. for years and then I went to Chicago with it, did like six months in Chicago. And we didn't realize that, wait a minute, all of these characters were born here. I'm from here. My mother's from the Bronx. My father's an Italian immigrant, came right over to New York. And uh, so, you know, all the characters, my mother, my father, my sister, my, my brother, my grandmother, they all have a real New York bend to them. So that's a great thing about the New York audiences. We're, we're seeing a lot of the nudging, a lot of the, oh, you know, that's just like Uncle So-and-so, or, you know, you're like him. And, you know, after the show, people always say that, you know, my husband's just like this guy, or, you know, my boyfriend's like this guy. We see some return business, too. We see people coming back. A lot of times we'll see women in like little groups, you know, office groups or work groups or whatever. And then the following weekend, we see the women come back with, uh, you know, different males in tow. Any Alan Aldas? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Well, if we do have Alan Aldas, we actually drag them up on stage. There's a section of the show called uh, uh, It's uh, it's All Geek to Me. It's a mock game show. 
and we bring the guys up, we spin the wheel and uh, ask them questions on different topics and how they respond is how much of a renaissance geek they happen to be. That can be, uh, that can be sometimes the highlight of the show. It's really a lot of fun. Anything that involves the audience is always a blast. They have a great time. And they get prizes, too. So how long have you been running now in New York already? Oh, we opened uh, January 24th. So we're, uh, we just opened, yeah. And uh, the people have been great. The Players Theater is a, a beautiful little space over there on McDougal Street. It's like, McDougal Street's like a movie set. You know, it's all the restaurants and everything, little one-way street. And um, it's just great. We get a lot of people who just come, and there's so many things to walk to, restaurants and stuff. It's a great, it's a great evening out. And the show is... As as plays go, it's a we get like sort of a you know nice uh, on the weekends we do matinees. We have a three o'clock and an eight o'clock, and then on Sundays we do a three o'clock and a seven o'clock. And the show's seventy five minutes, no intermission. It's just you know it's a real fun you know crackly kind of show. And then you know it's not you know we're not doing Beckett. We're just trying to <laughs> make people laugh and and make people you know have some poignant moments too. So uh, how has the show changed over the eight-year It changes every time I do it. Any time I go to a different place, I always go in and I tweak it, I modify it. There's a lot of pop culture references that obviously need to be updated when you're running for eight years. Uh, so um, I, do, uh, I do modify it, but it gets better, I think, with each modification. You cut away a little dead weight and you tweak this and you tweak that. My grandmother is a brand-new character. I just added her. Uh, she wasn't in any other aspect of the show until uh, this New York run. And uh, sadly, she's in a nursing home now, so she's still lucid as hell, but she, uh, she, doesn't, um, she can't come out to see it. You know, she's not uh, mobile. So, uh, How has your family's response to the show been? Oh, they've been great. My, my, they, my mother, geez, my, if my mother could hire a friggin' crop duster to drop leaflets over southern Connecticut, she would. She's, uh, she couldn't be more supportive. My brother, everyone, I, I always like to make the joke when people say, you know, how does your family like it? I always say, well, as soon as they start talking to me again, I'll find out. But, <laughs> but the, the, they realize how exaggerated it is. My brother, uh, my brother's the most exaggerated, much to his uh, chagrin, but he's, he's very supportive, my brother. He's, he's, he's a very, very smart, uh, smart guy who uh, is, is nice enough to let me, you know, poke fun at, you know, uh, you know, two seconds of his of his adolescence that I've decided to lock on to and make that character perpetual through his whole life. And he's very nice to sort of let me get away with it. So now this is scheduled for an open-ended run? Open-ended run, yeah. We're, uh, and, uh, we and that just, means still don't procrastinate for tickets because open-ended means you don't know how long it's going exactly. to run. Exactly. Well, open-ended, depending on you that's listening. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're very excited. The, the audiences are building over there, and uh, it's really been it, it's just It's been received so beautifully, and, and people are liking it. Just last night, Thursday night, you know, light Thursday night house, and still, you know, Still, we got a standing ovation, so could not have been happier about that. And that, that, that to me, is always the test of, of, a, of a decent show. If you can play to an intimate group and that it doesn't, and they're still enjoying it, it doesn't rely on the contagion of laughter of a 700-seat house, you know, then you really know that you've touched people. And, uh, and I think we're, we're, we're real happy with how it's going. 
I, I'm curious on a different note with a one-person show and an open-ended run. Does this mean you're like relaxed as an actor, or, or are you still hustling, looking for work at the moment, or trying to line up maybe the next project? Well, or, I mean, I, I, I don't really have the time to to do that now, especially because it's early on. Once we lock into a groove and you get show fit, then of course I would love to continue to. Uh, to you know, secure secure an agent in New York and, and audition during the day. It's just that you're you're a little limited when you have a show call every night. You know, you can't. You know, a lot of uh, I'm told that a lot of the, the film and TV work is like, oh, he's got to be out of there by six thirty. You know, you might not be as as hot a property as the person <laughs> who has a free evening. You know. But um, I am writing the next one. The next one is called On the Rocks, and it's a two-person show. I figured after you write a one-person show called Straight Up with a Twist. Then it's time to advance two people. Two people, and then call it, you know, On the Rocks. So there's still some alcohol reference, even though Straight Up with a Twist is not an alcohol reference. And maybe some at some point you'll be skilled enough as a playwright to write for four or five you people. You know, they said I was a fool to dream, <laughs> but we're hoping... <laughs> All right. Well, Paul Strolli, I thank you so much for coming down. Thank you, Michael. I had a great time. I appreciate it. Uh, the website is uh, straight-up.com. Yeah, straight-up. Don't put straight up together because that goes to gay porn. <laughs> and I was really happy to find that out after buying the domain name for five years. Straight-up. Put that hyphen between those two words. Or telecharge.com for tickets as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Straight up with a twist, Paul Strolli, thank you so much for coming down and, and sharing your experiences getting the show together. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Best of luck with your run. Bye-bye. In the best of companies. For those people who like to see their theater in a little bit more interactive format, Knock'em Dead is being presented at the International Studio Theater at Roy Arias Theaters, produced by Roy Arias and directed by Robert Harrelson. And we have the two of them here in the studio today to talk about the play Knock'em Dead and probably a little bit about what's going on at Roy Arias as well. So how are you guys doing? Doing great. Mm, doing very well. Yes. <laughs> All right, why don't you introduce yourselves quick so that people can connect your voices with your names. Um, I'm Robert Harrelson. I'm director of Knock'em Dead. Um, Robert Harrelson. I'm Roy Arias. I'm the producer of Knock'em Dead and the, I guess, general manager, and <laughs> most, most of it all, from Roy Arias Studios and Theaters. All right, so to kick this all off, uh, I guess, what, what is Knock'em Dead in, in a nutshell? What, what's Knock'em Dead about? What do, what do audiences expect to see here? It's a very funny play. It's a play that it's about a murder mystery. I think the director can uh, talk about mo- mostly, mostly in depth about the play. But it's, uh, I was attracted to it because it's so outrageous because it takes place at a... Um, a Billy Laugh Club. Which is somewhat of a... I don't know if I say Laugh Factory, but yes. somewhat of a... <laughs> of a laugh speaking factory. of Laugh Factory, we're right about Yeah, that. I know. That's what I mean. So it's a, you know, it's a comedy club and probably a really bad comedy club, which me- makes for good comedy. All right, a little CD comedy place that, you know, we come to see, find great talent where we have like a chanteuse. Uh, we have a dog that's coming in that has a lip-syncing dog act. Um, we have the great Somnambulo that comes in, who's a um, hypnotist extraordinaire. Um, so you have all these different characters that come trying to win the finals at Vinny's Belly Laugh Factory, and they come, you know, and then when they find out that, oh my God, someone's been murdered. Yes. <laughs> and I understand there's uh, multiple endings to this. 
There are multiple endings. Um, the audience actually gets to choose who they think the endings, who they actually suspect the murderer is, so they get to pinpoint the murderer. Very audience participation. The audience gets involved in um, doing um, different things on stage by checking the pockets of different people, and they actually get to witness the, the murderer. So. Any uncomfortable moments for the actors with audiences rifling through their pockets? <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. <laughs> That's why we need a wonderful audience out there to promote this show because they have been rehearsing very hard and they desperately need an audience to actually interact and pinpoint them as the murderer. Yes, I have to say I saw the other day and it's a very, very funny show. And I'm sure you know it's going to be a lot funnier when we get the audience in there, which we can't wait. It actually starts uh, tomorrow night. Wednesday, opening yes. night. Uh, Wednesday's opening night, and we're expecting to be to knock him dead, <laughs> so to speak. Yes. Now, Roy, uh, I understand you, you wear a lot of hats in terms of staying involved in the creative field here. You run Roy Aria Studios, a whole suite of performance spaces and rehearsal studios, but you produce, and I understand you act as well. How do you kind of... It kind of goes backwards because I'm an actor, and I think I would always be an actor, you know, whether I own studios or I direct plays or produce in this case. And I opened a theater, so I was able to act pretty much and have my own little theater. Well, that led to many, many other spaces. Now, we have 14 spaces, including dance studios, rehearsal studios, and theaters. And we just got this new theater because the, the play actually takes place on 9th Avenue and 44th Street at the new Royaria Studios Theater Center 2 which is 616 9th Avenue. So you're a mogul now. Well, I don't know about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on it. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, but really what happens is that I, I opened something for completely different reasons. You know, I still have my job. I was an acting teacher at a college. I was still doing that. And this kind of took over. And it's, it's very nice. I'm not going to say I don't miss acting and being <laughs> on stage. But it's very nice to be on the other side and deal with actors, directors, you know, producers, in this case, this is the first show that we're producing since I have Royaria Studios and Theater as such a big company. I mean, we produced before, but we had to stop it completely. And now we're producing, and it's quite, quite interesting because it's going back to everything that we were doing before, how much work goes into it. I deal with so many companies, so many small companies, medium-sized companies that come and put all this work, and I see it from outside. So seeing it from the inside... Out, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. What all that goes into a, into a production of an off of Broadway show, in order to make it successful, in order to make a quality night out for a pretty much inexpensive price. Yeah. Now, with all the shows that you see and directors you deal with on and producers you deal with on a daily basis and stuff, what makes a show stand out to you that you decide, okay, this is the one I'm going to produce now? Well, I wanted to do something that was not a downer. I mean, I love theater. I love serious theater, and I can be thrilled and moved, and I love that. But I wanted to start with something. So we were going back to producing. It's something that the audience was going to come out of there and, and say, you know, they had a good time, and they lost themselves into the play. And I was, you know, when Robert and I talked about this, uh, he has another show that he did at Our Spaces. That's how we met. And then he told me all oh, this. I found this play. It's called Knock Him Dead. And I was like, you know, let me read it. And when I was reading it, I was so... I was laughing out loud. <laughs> he, so, said, he kept saying, Robert, I can't stop laughing. <laughs> you know, so I was just laughing. You know, I was just reading it. I was imagining this thing. So I was like, okay, you just need to get the right cast, the right director. And I think we found that. So really that's, you know, that's the bottom line. That you, I want something that the audience comes out saying, you know, oh, I had a good time. 
So uh, how time-consuming is the process of managing all these spaces and dealing with all the various personalities uh, <laughs> that I'm, I'm sure you meet? It's extremely time-consuming. Uh, it's Like I said, it's rewarding, but I pretty much live at Roy Area Studios and Theaters. Uh, I do everything but sleep here. And, you know, pretty much good 16 hours a day. But I'm... I believe, I don't know if I'm uh, being delusional, but I believe this is until we set it up and everything is up and running and then, we, you know, I can go back to do my acting. I can go back to producing uh, more shows, not only one show. You know, I think we should do a lot with our spaces. There's so many actors in New York that need a showcase. That's what they need. That's why they're doing this type of theater. They need, and when I say showcase, I mean not only equity showcases, as we know, but I mean showcase in general, somewhere where somebody can see their talent. Because what other city in the world can you find actors this good to work for a showcase? I mean, to be at this level. So we need to take advantage of that, not to use or abuse them, but to really give them an opportunity for people to see them, for casting directors, for agents, for their friends, you know, even their friends or people who can advance their career to see them. And I think Royaria Studios and Theaters can provide that and has been providing that for a lot of people that have rented from us. I think the good thing about you know doing shows like this at the Roy Ares Theaters um, is the fact that they can actually express themselves more and get that theater building their resume type of thing going. And um, a lot of the, coming, the actors that are coming out need that, need to build their resume and want their first off-Broadway off show, you know, and I think this is a good opportunity for that. Well, and uh, directors, too. I'm curious. How have, you, how have you been forging your career as a director in, in this competitive scene? It's <laughs> um, I, I, came, I came here from Orlando, Florida. I've been here in New York for about three years. Um, I had the wonderful fortune of meeting Roy when I first moved here, actually. Has it been three years already? I guess so. Wow. <laughs> and um, I, I met him, and I... I came to got some space, produced my own show, came to my space, and we actually did the show. Um, it was actually called Twisted Carol, and it was very successful, and I was really proud. I was proud of it, and um, the actual thing was, I'm a, wow, I'm now a off-off-Broadway director in New York. So it was a big <laughs> dream come true for me, and you know, Roy has helped me continue my dream. So basically, I'm sort of you know, portraying what we want the actors to portray you know, by building their resumes as well. So it's been exciting for me. So Knock 'em Dead is like my second you know, show. So actually, I've done Second Samuel Three after shows. that. Um, did Second Samuel in the same space that we're currently located on um, 616 9th Avenue, um, 43rd and 44th, um, did that there, and then we also did Twisted Carol um, prior to that. So this is my third New York, thanks to Roy Arias. <laughs> so I'm curious, now, I, I know I've seen, there's, there's equity productions and non-equity productions both in, in your spaces, correct? Correct, yes. We're totally equity approved, obviously, uh, if you want to do a show in an equity-approved house and you're not, your non-equity is okay, it just means we're equity-approved. It does not mean that we have to hire equity personnel. That's, a produ- that's the production end, meaning if the director, I think how it goes is that if somebody in the cast or the stage manager's equity, the production has to be an, either an equity uh, production or an equity showcase. That's really out of my hands. The only thing I do, except in this production where I'm producing, uh, the only thing I do for my renters is that I get the space equity approved, meaning they can go to equity and they can say, you know, I have a, I have a show that I want to put up and it's equity. This, uh, what space? 
they look them up pretty much and they said yeah you can because it means that you know the bathrooms are up to code the dressing rooms are up to code the chairs the fire aisles you know all those things that equity does for actors and I guess for audience in general so uh, so how many productions go on in, in this in your theaters in an average year would you say I don't know the answer to that but I think in an average month we because we have six spaces I mean I, I'm sure good 40 45 a year <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, because we have some shows that are one-timers. We have some shows that are weekend. We have some shows that are, you know, that, that stay a few months. So I would say a good, you know, and I think, and I'm expecting more because we're, we're growing and we're doing other, we're doing other, other venues now. We're, we're expanding, so... Yeah, you, you, I know you've been getting busier and busier these past years. I've seen the hallways. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're, oh, you're in the same building as, as us, obviously. And uh, I'm kind of curious what what your plan has been for promoting and marketing and differentiating your space with all the other rehearsal and performance spaces in New York. I think there's no better promotion than word of mouth. I mean, also, you know, people have mentioned somebody abroad. I mean, in the Heights else. has actually been rehearsing in here. Correct? Yes, he has. Yeah. In the Heights, uh, we have, uh, I mean, some of them I'm not, I may not be sure, so I don't want to uh, misquote something, but I know Disney had a musical, like, last year, ASCAP, who rehearsed here, excuse me. Uh, we've had some pretty big uh, productions. Oh, Spelling Bee did some rehearsals yes. here as well. I heard that. Uh, I, you know, uh, Second Stages rehearse here all the time. Uh, which is a company right across the street from us, you know, we, I think we're getting people from Broadway and off-Broadway. And, you know, for rehearsals of uh, Labyrinth, the public theater, just rehearsed a production here for a full month. So we, we're getting just the word out there. But other things that we use is we advertise in backstage, obviously, which, you know, uh, show business. Uh, Craigslist does very good for us. <laughs> Craigslist, Backpage, you know, all the mediums of advertisement. Broadway Buzz. Yes. Exactly, Broadway Bullets and Bullets. You know, now, <laughs> so hopefully we were we're going to get a lot more attention than even we've gotten. So and I'm going to need to get more rooms because I don't know what to do with people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, a nice problem to have. Probably. Yes, it is. At the time, it doesn't seem so nice, but it is a nice problem to have. It beats the alternative. Yeah, that is not you know <laughs> being dead. All right. Knock him dead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Knock him dead. Um, these are the show opens on uh, Wednesday the 13th. Correct. And it only runs for two weeks. So you got to catch it quick. Uh, it goes the 13th, the 14th, actually, that whole weekend with one production in the afternoon, which is Sunday. And we also have a production. We also have a show on Monday night. I always insist on that, and I tell my clients, you should have a show Monday night. Because That's it's the when only everybody, time, everybody it's the only off. Time everybody's off in the theater, so they can come and see you, you know, your colleagues, your act, the other actors. And then I think we go back to Wednesday through Sunday. Actually, actually, I think we're off Monday, Tuesday, and then we pick back up on Wednesday. Exactly. And then the last yeah. day is at 8 p.m., not right. at 3 p.m. We only, only one matinee in the room. Right. And uh, I'm guessing is the whole schedule on your website, the myspace.com slash play. Correct. And if they need any information, they could also call Roy Arias Studios and Theaters at 212-957-8358. They can also go to Smart Ticks if they'd like to do that. And tickets are like $25, I think, and $1.25 service charge. And $20 but, uh, for students and senior right. citizens. All right. Well, Roy Arias and Robert Harrelson, I thank you so much for coming into the studio today and talking about Knock'em Dead and uh, your careers and Roy Arias Studios. And thank you very much. Wish you the best of luck with this production. Thanks a lot. Thank you. On the positive side.
Hey, once again, this is Marty Cooper on the positive side. Um, today I'm going to talk about something I uh, uh, saw this weekend. A few years back, uh, they decided to revive a show called Bells Are Ringing. Score by Julie Stein, music and lyrics by Comden and Green, book by Comden and Green. A winner in every aspect. Years back in the late 50s, was it late 50s, early 60s, I'm not sure, they did a Broadway the original Broadway version, and the show was obviously written for a young lady named Judy Holliday, uh, who was a big comic musical star of the 50s. Uh, she made a lot of very funny movies. She played the dumb blonde constantly. Her big role was a movie called Born Yesterday, which, by the way, was revived about 15 years ago on Broadway with uh, the late and great Madeline Kahn taking on that role. It might have been 20 years ago. I'm, I'm losing uh, all idea of time at the moment. But in any case, it was written basically for her, and it was wonderful, and it had uh, two evergreens in it. The party's over. Well, actually three, long, long before I knew you. Just in time. Really nice score. Some popular tunes. But it was basically written for Judy Holiday. And a, a number of years back, they revived it on Broadway uh, and put Faith Prince in the role. Miscast, and he's oddly ever miscast, Mark Kudish, who was much too young for the part as the, as the boyfriend. It was about, for people who don't know, it was about a, a female answering service and a young lady that works for the answering service, and she falls in love by phone with one of their with one of her clients. But in any case, it was, as I said, done a few years back with Faith Prince. She was great, but she wasn't Judy Holiday. Other than having that big star, uh, the show really wasn't much to look at. Um, and, and you thought to yourself, how did it make it back then? Even with the hit songs, hit songs aside, uh, it wasn't a great show. It was great for Judy Holiday. Well, on Sunday, I went to City Center Encores uh, and saw a uh, revival of applause with the great Christine Ebersole, who was great in Grey Gardens. And I don't think I've ever seen a, a, sa a second act opening quite like that. But uh, years back, 1970, uh, almost 40 years ago, Applause played at the Palace Theater, and the star was Lauren Bacall. And Lauren Bacall couldn't sing great, and uh, she can just about do a few good dance steps. But when she walked out on stage, it was Lauren Bacall. And one can't expect Christine Ebersole to create the same kind of magic. She might create similar magic to some people who frequent the theater now. She is great, you know, I'm not going to take anything away from her. But Lauren Bacall, she ain't. And uh, applause with a score by Charles Strauss, a book by Comden and Green, don't have the evergreens that even Bells Are Ringing had. Uh, when I listened to the score on Sunday, I thought to myself, what was I thinking back then? Uh, I mean, I had a good time in 1970. Uh, the score is basically a lot of 60s dancey fluff. Really worked in the show. It worked with Miss Bacall. It didn't work with Miss Ebersole. Her co-stars were great. Mario Cantone, 
I thought was fantastic as a hairdresser. He had one really great line in the show. I don't know if you know, Applause is based on All About Eve, which was a big Betty Davis movie back about 1950. Uh, And it was about about an upstart young actress uh, literally bulldozing the older, established one, you know, and taking her place. The book was actually very good. The story was actually very good. Oh, but I'm actually meandering a bit. Mario Cantone plays her hairdresser. When Eve is taking over everything that Margot Harrington has been doing, when Eve is taking everything over, they ask, they ask him, are you going to do her hair also? And he says, only when she's laid out. Well, that might be the best line in the show. Her co-stars were great. Michael Park was wonderful as the much younger boyfriend. He's the director of the show she's starring in. Megan Sakura, uh, who does the title song, big spectacular dance number. Uh, she's starring in Curtains right now. She was wonderful. Uh, by the way, years back in the original applause, a young 20-year-old named Bonnie Franklin did the same thing. Well, in any case, there was a lot to enjoy there, but it wasn't the caliber that it should have been. And as I say, the two leads, there was absolutely no chemistry between the two of them. And so uh, I enjoyed it a bit. I was really looking forward to it because, as I say, I loved the original. I seem to have forgotten what magic Miss Bacall emoted when she walked out on the stage. She kind of made that whole show. And, and without her, it really wasn't much. And Kathleen Marshall did her best with the directing and the choreography. You know, I said a few months ago, Kathleen Marshall actually made Greece look good, you know, in my mind, you know. So uh, most of the things she does is write her choreography and directing. So in any case, uh, so that's my feelings. If you uh, have any opinions, so you can email me at broadwaymarty at AOL.com. And once again, I want to thank everybody for their kind notices when I was out ill. Once again, this is Marty Cooper saying, stay on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. All right, so that's the end of Act One here. It's all going to be in one episode, but uh, now's a good time. If you are listening straight through, you might want to take a short break, stretch, you know, get a snack, uh, do a little bit of work. Maybe not. You can just head straight into Act Two. Got more great stuff on the way, including interviews and live performance from the musical Glimpses of the Moon, the play Gray Area, Providence, and uh, Top of the Trades. So let's launch into Act Two. On the boards. The works of Edith Wharton might not be the first thing to come to most composer teams' heads when looking for a novel to adapt, but. Uh, Composer John Mercurio and lyricist book writer Tylee Levis are used to taking on difficult subject matter and different subject matter, and that is certainly the case with the new Edith Wharton comedy Glimpses of the Moon, which is playing at the Oak Room at the Algonquin Hotel. We have got composer John Mercurio and actor Stephen Plunkett here with us to talk about the show and uh, possibly even perform a number here from it. So, how are the two of you doing this morning? Doing all right. Good, Michael. Thanks for having us. You want to introduce yourselves quick so our listeners can connect the voice with the name? Uh, yes, I'm Stephen Plunkett, the actor. <laughs> I'm John Mercurio, the composer. 
So I guess the first thing to set this all up, uh, first off, is tell us a little bit about Glimpses of the Moon. What it, what is it about, as, as a musical, as a novel? It's a, it's it's one of uh, Edith Wharton's uh, rare comedies. Um, you know, she's known for darker works like you know Age of Innocence and House of Mirth, um, but. Uh, Glimpses of the Moon is sort of the um, antidote to House of Mirth, which adds, uh, ends tragically. This is a sort of a, a more of a beat comic ending for our heroine. Um, and it's a, it takes place in 1922, which seemed like um, a real good fit for the Oak Room and the history of that room and uh, the, the pedigree and the oak walls and all that sort of stuff. It sort of worked for um, Edith Wharton and her material and her sensibility. Um, but it's definitely a, um, a comedy of manners. It's a, about class and about these two young kids who really have um, not much money between them, and they come up with this kooky scheme to get married and live off the wedding gifts for a year, and while they're married, find suitable millionaires and sort of trade up. But of course, along the way, they fall in love, and they have to deal with that. And it, it, it all becomes a question of, like, you know, sacrifice and the, the compromise you make for love or for money and, and the choices we make. So, what, what the the Oak Room is most notable for holding, you know, a lot of cabaret performances. Um, I don't know if I've really heard of too many full scale musicals being presented in the space. Uh, as a performer, as a composer, what do you find different about actually performing a full scale musical in the Oak Room? Well, it's. Um it's certainly an intimate space. Uh, you know, the audience is practically, you know, upon you. Uh, there's not a lot of room to move, but it's, uh, I find it kind of appealing. It's nice to have um, the people so close, and it's, you know, kind of an environment that evokes uh, the setting in the play. Um, so that helps you a lot as an actor in terms of imagining uh, where you are. And, you know, it feels right to be wearing... 1920s uh, garb and singing jazz uh, in this beautiful room with people, um, you know, eating off <laughs> fine china with so nice silver. They are and, still serving food. So. Um, well, you know, people are mostly yeah. finishing their dessert. But um, <laughs> there's uh, some great food there. I, I've eaten there. It's a, they, the food's pretty amazing. Try the tenderloin. I hear it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it helps put them in the right frame of mind too for being all. Definitely. Ready to enjoy a show. That and a couple rusty nails. (laughs) (laughs) So um, what are some of the... Wait, now I understand there's also guest artists involved in this this show. Yeah, we have a uh, rotating guest artist um, part in the show written in for a scene that takes place in the Oak Room in 1922. So our two lovers go there. Um, they're actually, it's the low point of their relationship. They've pretty much decided to part. And they're there and they're listening to this chanteuse who's urging them to stay together. And she sings um, a song called Right Here, Right Now. And so far, we've been blessed with having you know Liz Larson and um, Jane Summerhays is coming next week. And then after that, Susan Lucci and Joyce DeWitt. So it's been it's been great working with these you know great artists. But also, it's just it's so interesting to hear this song sung differently every week and hear a different take on it. It must be interesting for you to, to be on the receiving end of that. Yeah, it's like uh, brand new every night. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess, what is it too much of a spoiler to give away? What, what is this part that's written to be played by somebody different every night? She's an actual um, cabaret singer okay. in the Oak Room, yeah. That's her part. But there's a scene <laughs> in the Oak in the Room, Room in the play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've got a pretty experienced... Uh, 
you know, production creative staff on here. Uh, director Mark Bruni um, worked on uh, Legally Blonde in Greece in different capacities. Uh, choreographer Dennis Jones. Uh, what was what was like kind of their take on the whole thing when when it was said that okay we want to do this full scale musical in a <laughs> in a small intimate cabaret space? <laughs> well, I remember Mark's sort of watch cry through all of this has been, you know, there are no problems, only opportunities. So when you hear things like the waiters have to get into the room at 4.30 to set up their tables and change the linens, and we are meanwhile trying to rehearse, that's an opportunity, you know? <laughs> so we, we have to just sort of go with the flow of what goes on in that room because it's it's first and foremost a restaurant getting set up to do Usually, cabaret, you know, one woman, usually a woman, coming to sing a song in, a, in front of a grand piano. But we have, this is entirely different with sets and props and extra lights and choreography. So um, the Oak Room has been pretty game with all of these things we're throwing their way and, and very supportive. And it's, you know, it's just definitely have to compromise and, and uh, take it in stride. So the scene written to take place at the Oak Room, was it, was that a creative choice before you decided to actually perform there, or, or was that a, something you incorporated in once you realized you were performing in that space? Well, the, the piece was written specifically for the Oak Room. So um, it was devised for the room. Um, Barbara McGurn at the Oak Room heard about a piece Tylee and I had written called A Time to Be Born that was done at the Fringe two years ago. And it, was, um, it seemed right for the room in style and era. Um, but it was too big. Tylee and I felt it was too big to do in the room. It's 13 characters. It's two and a half hours long. And it just couldn't quite sustain, the room couldn't quite sustain that <laughs> There'd size There'd be no room for piece. the audience. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we, we thought, what if we wrote a piece specifically for the room? So we've, uh, Tylee found this wonderful source material, we, and, and we fashioned it as a kind of a little chamber musical. So we knew we were going to be in the room, and so we um, chose to set one of the scenes in the Oak Room. Well, before we continue, maybe it's time to perform a, a number from the show right here in the studio. Do uh, you need to set up this number that the two of you are going to be singing here? Um, all right. Well, this is uh, second number in Act 2, and um, basically uh, what's happened, Nick and Susie, the two central characters, have this brilliant scheme um, that they're going to get married for money. That is, they're going to get married so that they can live off of the fancy gifts all of their rich friends give them, <laughs> take a year-long honeymoon. Um, and that's all going great for a while until Nick realizes that the moral cost of what they're doing is too great. And he leaves, and Susie goes her own way, and, you know, he spends the night out, um, you know, drinking, trying to figure out what to do. And Nick and Susie's mutual friend, Streffy, has just um, endured um, a kind of tragic event that has made him very uh, wealthy. And he suggests you know, a possible solution to the problem, which is, <clears throat> um, you know, to let Susie go with Streffy so that she can have the kind of lifestyle to which she's grown accustomed and, you know, Nick won't continue to have to uh, pay this high moral price. So uh, the song is Nick considering um, what, trying to just figure out how he still feels about Susie and what he wants to do to move forward. And uh, Streff sings along, and uh, yeah, it's called I'll Step Aside. And uh, in the show, do you, do, do you also do the role of Streff in the show, John? No, I'm, I'm just here because uh, Glenn wasn't able to, Glenn Peters, who plays Streff, wasn't able to come, so I'm stepping in uh, singing the song. And playing, playing and piano playing and singing. All right, well, let's take a listen. Get ready to perform? Yes, thank you. Do I still adore her? 
and want what's best for her. I just can't ignore her. Lord knows I've tried, though I'll always love her. Won't stop thinking of her, but could I recover time to decide? Love her, leave her. She needs a Taj Mahal, she's a treasure, but I have nothing at all. I loved her before you, so now I implore you, and if it's me or you, I'll give up my pride. with this performing in the Algonquin and, and a lot of times they have rotating schedules of cabaret acts, is this something that rotates in with other things or is this a, a full scale like eight performances a week run? Yeah, uh, sort of both. It's, it's eight Mondays. Um, ending in March 10th is our last performance. Um, and we have to sort of work around the other shows that come in the, the other nights of the week. Um, luckily, it doesn't affect us much because we have our own lighting system that we use, and their lighting plot may change from performance to performance. So we de- we come in, we set up like an hour and a half, two hours before the show. We do our show, we move our props downstairs, and then we. So it's kind of so if you worked at the Fringe, a exactly. Years, it's very yes. you're very comfortable <laughs> good with training. That. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that idea. And uh, John, I understand that you are about ready to move. On to another project as well. All right, Steve. Sorry, sorry, Stephen. Yeah, Stephen, you're. It's all right. We're both wearing black. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I am. Uh, I am working on a project called This Beautiful City. It's a new civilians musical about um, religion and politics and American freedom. Um, that's based on interviews with evangelical Christians and other members of um, the community in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We are uh, currently working on it at the Humana Festival, where it's going to make its world premiere. And it's very exciting. Now, a lot of actors, you know, really work hard and network their butts off to try to, you know, originate one role. Uh, how did you kind of stumble into this where you're originating two roles within a period of a couple of months? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Just really great luck, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's something if you try to do, you're just bound to fail. But uh, sometimes you just, you know, get lucky. So how's the the audience reaction has been has been good to this concept of to seeing a whole musical at? Yeah, I, I think they they walk in a little wary. I, I sometimes I hear because I'm playing the show, I can hear people beside me, and I, I hear some people looking at their programs, going, 
oh, no, no, it's a full musical. No, no, there's an intermission. There's a, it's full <laughs> musical. So I think they're very surprised when it it's actually is a you know a full-length two-act show and that there's a little bit of dancing that goes on in the, in this tiny space. So I think they're very surprised and... Um, and delighted. I mean, so far we've sold out every performance. Um, we're, we're looking to extend, and we have some interest from producers to uh, potentially move. And there's great regional interest because it's so producible. Six characters, no set. And we've kind of sort of proven if it can work in this bare-bones version, it can work in any you know larger incarnation of that. So, And we've gotten great reviews, so I think producers are kind of excited about the potential here. Now, the Oak Room has, like, you know, a long history, of course, and there's people who go to the Oak Room just to go to the Oak Room. It's, you know, they, they know the Oak Room is going to be bringing in good talent. And so I'm curious, have, have you sensed how much of the audience is kind of their built-in clientele and how much are musical theater fans maybe coming to the Oak Room for the first time? And That's a good question. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I think, I would say, I'm guessing, I would say maybe a third of the audience is you know, the regular clientele sniffing out what, you know, the Oak Room's doing. But I think the majority is people who are musical theater fans looking for a new musical produced in a highly unusual venue. Not that that's the reason to see it, but I think one of the things Tylee and I were, were eager to do with the show is to get an actual production up. You know, we all know how hard that is in this world of new work. The $15 million shows aside... And, and the two or three shows that get slotted regionally for new productions, it's really hard to get to get a real full-fledged production, not just a workshop, not just a reading. And so we sort of bit the bullet and tried to find a new way to do that. So I think some people are kind of sniffing out it, it out from that point of view and seeing <laughs> if we were successful. I don't know if it works. It's seeing ways of thinking outside the box as far as a way of getting new work up. Yeah, because the, the first time I went to the Oak Room, okay, I'm one of those New Yorkers who gone to a lot of theater. I've gotten used to the the concept of, wow, you know, I don't have to necessarily dress up to go to theater. I don't feel out of place. I can just go, you know, enjoy it. And the first time I went to the Oak Room, I'm, like, looking at what I'm wearing, and I'm going, whoa, okay, <laughs> I, I feel horribly out of place here. This is a, this was the place to actually get dressed up and, uh, and go all out for a date and stuff. Is it, is it still that way? Do, should people... Should people be prepared for more of a fancy night out? And, and Pretty much everyone except our director. He shows up in jeans and sneakers every week. <laughs> but, yeah, people tend to dress up a little bit, yeah. Which I think a lot, especially the women out there, really love an opportunity to be able to get dressed up and, and go out. I just uh, want to let them know to be prepared <laughs> so that their boyfriend doesn't feel the horrible, shirking shame of, yeah. oh, my God, I'm wearing tennis shoes. And, uh, it's a classy uh, date opportunity, guys. <laughs> it is. <laughs> So, um, what's next for the show? What I, you mentioned that you got some regional interest, and, and you're looking at extending anything anything solid yet. Do you have a? Yeah, not solid because it's it's still so no new. In a way, it feels like we've been running for three weeks, but that means three performances for mm-hmm. us since it's only once a week. So, we're still we literally just got through. I think most of the reviews coming in, and we're you know getting all those review sheets out and getting contacting producers and things like that. So it's we're still kind of in that. You know, planning period about what to do next. With the the regional interest and stuff, have you been talking to any of the Samuel French's or MTIs or the the various you know publishing companies that handle the licensing with regional and community theaters? Yeah, we've started to reach out to them. What's that process like dealing with with them? What are they looking for? What are they? Yeah, actually, I don't even know. We're just at the point of like inviting them and and seeing you know what their interest is. Yeah, but that would be cool. 
All right. Well, any any closing notes you'd like to, to say on the show uh, for people coming in? Um, I would just say for any information they're looking for, they can go to our website, which is glimpsesofthemoon.com, and you'll have all the information about tickets. You can read reviews. You can see what guest stars are coming and, and all that. All right. And, uh, thanks a lot for having us. Yes, yeah, thanks. Stephen Plunkett, John Mercurio, I thank you so much for coming down and performing and, and talking about the show. I wish you the best of luck in this kind of unique endeavor here in New York. And uh, I guess uh, you just had your performance last night. So next Monday. Well, tonight. Tonight. <laughs> oh, wait a is it is it Monday? I'm, 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 oh my gosh, it's Monday that I'm doing this. So break a leg tonight. Totally right. Thanks. And I'll, I'll <laughs> best of luck with everything. Thanks a lot. Thanks, it's a real Mike. pleasure. On the boards. Uh, one thing I've said on this program many times before is one thing I love about the art of theater is that you learn so much about other aspects of history and culture and, and so much more through the course of delving into the different works. And that is certainly the case with a new play opening in New York, Gray Area, that is written by playwright John Aline, who's also performing in the show. And he has stopped by to talk to us about Gray Area, which centers largely around uh, the Civil War and Civil War reenactors, I understand. That's correct. It is a it is a play about Civil War reenactors, and I say that to people, and they always they always give a little chuckle, and so which is good. Um, <laughs> they they have such a high uh, esteem in our culture. Well, they have an esteem. I don't know what level, what height it is, um, but the play is about those Civil War reenactors, and it is also about that reaction, uh, what people think when they think Civil War reenactors. That sounds really wishy-washy, but it's true. It's a play about three Civil War reenactors and uh, a New York drama social critic, the absolute most blue state guy you could ever imagine who has a radio program and he is so fed up with the world, he just, his final radio broadcast is just a bitter farewell. He fires salvos at all these targets and he saves this savage barrage uh, against Civil War reenactors for last. And these three Civil War reenactors, deep in the South, catch wind of this. And they stage a redress for the ages. They take profound offense at what he says. And uh, the play is um, what happens, this battle between these two polar opposites, these characters that are uh, Extremely colorful in their own right, but they are probably the most colorful because they're from the opposite ends of the spectrum. And uh, I play, well, you know what's so hard about theaters? You don't want to give stuff away. You know, it's like no spoilers, no spoilers. You know, even uh, uh, if I wrote the Bible, I wouldn't want people to say, Jesus died for your sins. You know, I want that to be a surprise. Uh, uh, oh, you spoil it for me. I missed that part. Um, I wasn't there yet. <laughs> so, so it's so that's the basic premise: is the, this confrontation with the stereotypes that people have about each other, and and all that really happy, wishy-washy stuff. But it is so funny and so surprising. There are so many twists and turns, and wonderful uh, points and thoughts and. Uh, ideas that people never thought before. This play actually has a history. It, it premiered in L.A. It won a contest. I was sitting around with, I had Act One in my drawer for, you know, for months. And then I saw this little ad in a paper, you know, playwriting contest, you know, first prize, full production. And so I used that. I tacked it up on my bulletin board. I said, there's my deadline. You know, whatever their, 
whatever their deadline date was, you know, a postmark date. And there would, so I <laughs> hammered out this act two. And with the ink still wet, I dropped it in the mail. And it won. It won the contest. And the first prize was a production. And it premiered in L.A., of all places, to produce a play about the Civil War. But actually, there's a huge <laughs> reenacting uh, community in Los Angeles. Well, there's a lot of actors. So. <laughs> yes. Well, there, see, there's levels of actors. There's actors, and this comes up in the play. There's actors, and then there's the lower rung reenactors. Um, uh, but they caught wind of this, and they started coming to this play, the reenactors, and also the the Hollywood community and all that, and or Hollywood theater. Wrong Hollywood. Get uh, eject word Hollywood. The Los Angeles theater community started showing up, but the reenactors started showing up in full uniform, and which was which was so fun. They really loved this play, and we were hoping that if we get enough of them, we could see them. You know, are you with the North or the South? We'd see them on the left side of the <laughs> like a like a wedding. Um, and so it did have that, and it was it was it it, it was um, highly acclaimed, and all those things you say. It was really quite a big hit with all kinds of people, and uh, so we it, it began its journey here to New York, and it opens uh, February thirteenth at the Barrow Group Theater on Thirty Sixth Street, uh, off Broadway production of Gray Area. So I'm curious, what was your interest in the Civil War? What drew you to writing this as a play? Well, it, uh, a play has about a million inspirations, uh, but there is I can trace it to one, one clear inspiration. I read this article. This It wasn't even an article. You know how in, in newspapers or magazines they have little tiny filler things at the bottom just to make the column? Well, I, it, it basically said a Civil War reenactor was shot by a real bullet while reenacting one of these battles. And I just started thinking about it. My first reaction was a laugh. And then I said, oh, dear, that poor guy. And then I started thinking about this. The, you know, it, it's logical that a real bullet could get into the mix somehow. I mean, that didn't surprise me. But I, I started thinking about the real guys, the reenactees, the guys who uh, these guys are portraying, you know, the guys who really came to a Civil War battlefield back in 1863 and faced real bullets. And, and that idea just haunted me. I said, why would, they, why would they come to do that? What difference of opinion was so great that men would take up arms, go to a battlefield, shoot at another American, and uh, try and kill him? Or stand on that same battlefield and face bullets Shot at you. What cause? What? And that's where it started. It was from that little article. <clears throat> but uh, it is a comedy. It is, uh, <laughs> it is everything. It is everything a play should be. It, it, it's moving. It's funny. It makes you think. It's not too long. It's all those important things that theater is. And uh, that's where it started, just a bullet. Bullets have started so much, and they've ended so much. But this little article about a Civil War, you know, and these bullets back in the Civil War, they were 69 caliber. And a caliber is uh, a measurement, 0.69 of an inch. So when Dirty Harry runs around with a 44, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> Go stand in line, you know, not behind anything, and face 69 caliber bullets. They were called mini balls. And, that, and that's why... They had so many amputations because these things would just smash your bones, and there was nothing you could do. You just lop off the limb, and um, 
I, I hope this doesn't air during dinner. Um, <laughs> but uh, 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 those, that was the beginning of it. And then I started thinking about these guys, and then I, I started thinking about how that all works into uh, society today and, and all that stuff. Um, and I created this play. It, it came to life. So have you participate, participated in any Civil War reenactments yourself? I haven't. I've, I've been aware of them, and I, I know people, and I haven't run around the field. Actually, these, <clears throat> these, um, these uh, characters, they say there's, uh, there are levels of reenactment, and there are reenactors who are so into it, they don't participate in the reenactments because they think they're kind of silly. You know? So these characters are that hardcore uh, they call them stitch counters because they make their own uniforms and they s- make sure that the stitches per inch are exactly what the original guys had per inch. And they make their own, they mold their own buttons and they smear themselves with bacon grease just to get the feeling of it. In the play, we call them method reenactors. And, and I've, never, I've never participated in those battles, but I've, I, I know these people, I've seen them, and I've walked all those battlefields and they're haunting. You go to Gettysburg, you can't come away without being shaken. Uh, but the best thing to do is then to walk down Steinware Avenue and go to the <laughs> souvenir shops, and, and you can buy the bullets right there. I actually did buy a bullet, sort of its inspiration. I put it on my desk, and they had a big box. And these were bullets from the battle. And I picked a nice sort of pristine-looking one. I didn't want There were all these mangled ones. I thought, oh, my God, what did those hit? So I just picked up a nice one that looked like some timid Connecticut soldier shot this hillside, you know, missed everything. And that was the bullet I used to inspire me those late nights typing this play up. Now, I'm wondering if you do attempt to deal with even, you know, in the subtext or whatever, kind of the inherent parallels between the theatricality of the stage world and kind of the inherent theatricality that is involved just in the event of reenactment itself. Was there any fun that you had? With oh, certainly. Well, that well, <laughs> parallel. This uh, the parallels are rich and deep. Uh, the the character who slights the reenactors in the play is named Farragut, and he's a big radio personality and this 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 uh, liberal critic, and he's a curmudgeon. He's 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 like an Alexander Walcott type who who is this old critic and and uh, old school critic and. So he, he has all that theatrical knowledge, and then he's suddenly confronted with these guys who, who don't even know what the name of Broadway is. And, and there, is, there are hundreds of parallels between theater, or, sorry, between acting and reenacting that, that sort of bubble to the surface in, uh, in this play. And all those themes are explored in very, very, very funny ways. Maybe now's a good time. You, you mentioned that you'd be willing to do like a short excerpt from the show itself here. Oh, I, I, I would be delighted. It, uh, I'm also the playwright, and that's a really interesting um, <laughs> thing, being in the play and being the playwright. Uh, I, the first thing I told the other actors is, is just treat me like an actor, but an actor with extraordinary power to change the script. <laughs> and uh, we, we, uh, um, it, it works out wonderfully, and it is so fun. It is such a, 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 such a dynamic to, to be able to, to f- make the play almost on our feet. You know, it's all written and, and the changes are small and occasional, but they do happen. Uh, so this, I'm going to piece this together and it's, it's, um, 
and regardless of what I say, it's the script because I'm the playwright. Uh, but this is, they're all sitting around the campfire, and this is uh, one of the characters, my character, reflecting on uh, reenactors. My character's name is Keith. Well, are we reenactors? There's levels of reenactment, you know. There's, there's the farbs, far be it from authentic. There's the uh, mail order brigades. You got the haversack folk. They talk all day long about the nuances of North Carolina belt buckles. It's real boring. You got the authentics, and you got the fanatics, the soap eaters, the hardcore. We don't, we don't, we don't fight in the reenactments. It's, it's play fighting. Like, we'll shoot a guy, he won't die. We call that iron underwear. We just like to be, you know, on the periphery, out in the woods by ourselves. And we like to feel what those guys back then felt and listen to the breeze. About the only thing we reenact are the Brady bodies. You know Matthew Brady, photographer? Yeah, well, I remember from a big uh, Matthew Brady book of photographs I read that yeah, we don't bring the book along to the campsite because it would be uh, uh, historically inaccurate and uh, uh, anachronistic to have it around. But, but we reenact those pictures, you know, and they made those photographs with glass, the negative imprint was on a glass plate. And after the war, no one wanted no, uh, none of those pictures anymore. So they sold those panes of glass to greenhouses, millions of them. And day by day, the sun would bake away the images. And over the years, the glass forgot what it beheld. All that history and horror has faded. And once again, you can peer in at the beauty or peer out at the sunlight. What it was all about is now forgotten. So we reenact those photos, the preserved ones, and we make up our own so they can speak again. We just look at the corpses with morbid fascination and wonder why, why they came to die. Good stuff. <laughs> and uh, I didn't do any of the funny lines. I'm saving them for... Uh, but uh, it, is, it is really a, a play about about what, mo what, you know, what, what motivates these guys, and, and it is about, um, it is about th those, those uh, uh, you know, the, the, the cliches, the, the, the uh, stereotypes that, that people need to get by. Uh, I, don't, I, can't talk, I don't like talking big picture like that because it sounds so dull. It is so, it's so rich and so deep and so moving and so funny and so alive and so about us and so about now. And so about um, what's going on. It's sort of above, it, it's looking down on everything that's going on now because it, it's not about politics and it's not about this and it's not about that and it's not about the current headline. It's about these overarching themes that have been with us for at least these 145 years, if not uh, more. And, and this story goes on and on, these every day or once a week I read an article in some paper about arguing about a Confederate flag or a statue or a... You know, there are, or people taking Mark Twain out of the curriculum because of the N-word. And all this is going on every day in our lives. And here's a play that comes along that's funny and fascinating and makes everyone think in a really, really hopeful, good, positive way about union, about what makes us similar. And there's a word you don't hear any, much anymore, union. People, 600,000 people died restoring the union. 
And it's a word that, that isn't on the lips of a single soul anymore. Hmm. Now, you yourself as an actor have had quite a career on Broadway stages, and recently you appeared in Journey's End, which Journey's won End. Tony for yeah. the last play. The last time I was on stage was uh, accepting the Tony Award for... Uh, uh, as a member of the cast of Journey's End for Best Revival, which was a play on Broadway about uh, World War I actors. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the, it's all blurring. World War I soldiers. Um, um, it's a gray area. No, it, World War I soldiers. Uh, and, um, and that was stunningly moving, that play. And uh, the, after that play ended, the audience uh, sat in their seats, and the ushers had trouble getting them out because they were so moved. They, they just wanted time to think and be. And so that was a wonderful experience. And that experience of going up and accepting a Tony. Oh, there were 100 of us on, in the, you, know, you know, 20 of us up there all standing behind someone behind the mic. But you turn and look at Radio City Musical, and there's 6,000 tuxedos. It's the largest gathering of tuxedos on earth. And, and they're so far away, none of them move. You know, you can't see movement. It just looks like a big picture. There's like this giant picture of... Little tiny tuxedo and lovely dresses, obviously. Uh, it's really quite a wonderful experience. But yes, I've, I've, and this play was written all around the country. I go to St. Louis, I go to, you know, Cincinnati, I go to, uh, to Pittsburgh, I go to, you know, wherever, North Carolina to do shows, Florida. And uh, so you talk to these people and you run into reenactors. And, and I, I love to go, uh, go out to the battlefields and, and explore whatever history happens in, uh, in all those towns. Now, Journey's End, without getting into a whole lot of stuff, it was really kind of notable. By, I mean, the critics really rallied around the show. It was one of the most critically lauded productions in years, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, But it was notable by the fact that a lot of the media commented, despite all this critical praise, it was you know almost an impossible sell to drag the audience it, it, in. It was. That is sort of the, the... We fostered that image. You know what we did? Can I say this? Do we have a time limit here? We in the company of Journeys End, this war about war, World War I play, you know, and we weren't getting audiences. And, you know, it was like, well, well hopefully we'll run a few more weeks and this and that. You know, that's an awful situation to live under. And so we got together, and they have this thing called the Easter Bonnet Contest, the um, – Equity Fights AIDS, Broadway Cares, has this Easter bonnet contest, and it's a fundraiser. And so all the musicals create this big number uh, and go and perform. And, and we said, let's go, let's go perform. And we were the only straight play who's performed in years. And but here we are, this, this serious, deadly serious World War I drama. And we, we create an Easter bonnet skit, and we built, uh, we built this about a, you know, a five-foot helmet as our Easter bonnet. And... Um, and we went over there, and the, the, the premise of our skit is, you know, here we are, you know, uh, um, we're in the, the most critically acclaimed show of all time, and, and uh, everyone loves it, but no one's coming, you know. It's, we have an empty house. We have 3% capacity. It was an intimate audience, 11 of us, 11 of them, <laughs> you know, things like that were the jokes. And then we said, well, we're here to sell out. And then we started doing, uh, and the music came up, and we did three uh, Jersey Boys songs. You know, and uh, we called the skit Journey Boys. And it was just so heartfelt and so fun and so funny, just playing off of the image that no one ever comes to see, the, you know, a straight play full of straight actors. You know, they, uh, uh, we won. We beat them all out. We beat out Lion King. You know, all these guys, they spend months on their skits. <laughs> we had one rehearsal. We threw it together, one rehearsal, and we won. And from that moment on, it sort of became the cliché 
that, oh, no one's coming to see this play. But actually, people did come. I mean, almost virtually everyone I know saw it. And, and by the end, and we went all the way through. We did our complete run. We had more performances, actually, than Coast of Utopia, all three performances. I mean, all three of those shows. So it wasn't, it, yeah, the audiences were, were very small. Then they got, they, they swelled to small. And then, um, but it, it was, uh, it wasn't as terrible as everyone thought. That sort of became a cliche that we perpetuated. But people, um, it was fun. We closed in the afternoon, and then we all got in tuxedos and went to the Tonys up the street, and we won. And that's how it all ended. <laughs> now, you, um, you make your, your living as an actor, right? Yes. And primarily stage? Well, stage, I do a lot of voiceovers. You wouldn't know it from my uh, ineptness okay. in this booth. But, um, yeah, stage, occasional television. I mean, in New York, there's just not that many television shows. But so how I, many times have you done Law and Order? I've done it twice, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's funny. It's TV is amazing. You know, I'll do it, and then the next day, I mean, it'll air, and the next day, five, six people. Hey, what were you on? It's just, TV is just amazing. It is all powerful, uh, and we're going to change that with this play, Gray Area, opening <laughs> February thirteenth. So what? How? Uh, how? How much hustling do you have to do to keep your career moving as an actor? You know what's, you know what's funny about acting is, um, is you don't have any tools. You don't have a toolbox. You don't have a, um, a desk to go to. You don't have uh, you know, computer programs that assist you. Your, your tool is yourself, your person. I'm, I'm my own work of art here. And so, strangely, things like um, um, reputation matter and being honest matters and 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 um, and gratitude matters so uh, I mean all the actors in this play there were no auditions they all got in because they knew somebody and that's such an old cliche and we were just talking about this yesterday that it's not what you know it's who you know in sort of a derogatory way well actually conversely that's important it's who knows your talent who knows your skill? Who knows your dependability? Who knows uh, how much you care? And, and, and it's sort of that, it's that kind of network. So yes, you can send out mailings and you can knock on doors and you can go to a million auditions, but the, the most important aspect of it all is how you comport yourself in your life. I've, I've experienced people who, who, who have lost jobs because someone doesn't want to work with them, you know, and it's sad and horrible, but if that's how they, you know, that all that stuff comes around. So the best thing to do, the hustling, is, is really your character. You know, what, um, and that's, it's so true of this play. You know, actors love to go out and drink after plays, you know. And I would go back to actor housing and I would sit and type this play up. I, I don't use, strategically not using the word right, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, but I sit and think, and and here it is. I'm doing my own. I'm on opening off Broadway, and uh, I, I traded 300 nights of drinking for a play opening on Broadway, and uh, it's a choice I make, and not to disparage drinkers, actors, bartenders, or anybody, but that's just you know. As uh, people think it's such a, a subjective uh, world, well, you know it's just, it, it, it's based on merit, and it's ba- you earn. You got to earn 
you know, there is a there is a, a system to it. You know, you got to earn your way, and uh, and so here I am, and uh, I couldn't be more excited as an actor, as a writer, as a person that this is all happening, and I would really love to share it with as many people as possible. So, Gray Area is opening on February thirteenth, and you're scheduled to run through March sixteenth. Yes. And that's at the Barrow Group? The Barrow Group Theater on West 36th Street. It's this old Con Edison plant that they've turned into a, a big building of theaters. The Abingdon's there and some other theaters. But the Barrow Group is on the third floor. And the floors are like five feet thick because they had to have these big uh, Con Edison generators. But it's a wonderful spot, uh, space. And um, uh, the Barrow Group has a, a pristine reputation for doing stellar work. And uh, they can find out more information at www.barrowgroup.org or go to smartticks.com for tickets. That's all correct. And uh, John Aline, I thank you very much for coming down and, and talking about so many varied things that went into the making of Gray Area. Good, and I went without notes. This was all from my head. Um, I appreciate it, really. I, I show you the deepest appreciation for what you do as well. Thanks so much, and best of luck with the run. Thank you. Top of the trades. The 100-day writer's strike has ended in Hollywood with a compromise deal made between the Writers Guild of America and the production teams of the major studio heads. The strike's end comes at a paramount time for the industry, with the Oscars approaching in the next two weeks. I believe this is also fortunate for Broadway. <laughs> Notice ticket grosses are way down from last year, and I have a sneaky suspicion that there's a lot of general tourists out there who confused the theater strike that ended uh, relatively quickly, two, three weeks, with the writer's strike in Hollywood and maybe still thought it was all one thing. I actually know a few people who talked to me about that same thing, going, what's going on? Are you doing anything with the strike? And I'm like, it's over. So um, hopefully everybody will realize this means Broadway is indeed back in business and there's some good stuff up and we'll uh, see some box offices rise. The family-friendly production of Tales of the Custard Dragon, originally presented at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, will be the headline at the Algonquin's Children's Theater Productions. The production, which will play the Algonquin Theater February 16th through March 8th at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., is directed by Broadway's Backwards creator, Robert Bartley. Monty Python's Spamalot has altered their Britney Spears reference in Diva's Lament at the request of director Mike Nichols and the show's creator, Eric Idle. Nichols said about the lyric change... Quote, we don't laugh at sad people. Britney Spears is being tortured to death, and we don't want to be on that side. End quote. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. For all your theater news and theater socializing, visit BroadwayWorld.com. On the boards. A new play opening at the Times Square Art Center deals with uh, uh, a pair of people that are dealing with unexpected loss in their lives. And we've got two of the actors here with us, Catherine Ekblad and Douglas Scott uh, Sorensen. Sorensen, yes. The, the handwriting again. <laughs> that um, It's being produced by Mayutic Theatre Company, right? Yes. Yes. So, uh, t first off, tell us a little bit about the show. Catherine? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you do it. Okay. Okay. Essentially, basic plotline is uh, two men lose their most significant others. Um, uh, my character Mark loses his best friend Sarah, and uh, the character Neil loses his wife. And the play is kind of an exploration about these two guys finding each other and and uh, working through 
what what sudden death does to you emotionally. And uh, is Jean Claude Van Damme of taking course. a role in this one? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, Catherine, you had an interesting observation about the the show before we kind of started talking, you know, as to your kind of thoughts as well. Um, Yes, my personal observation about the show is that the show, um, it sort of picks up where the end of other stories would leave off. It sort of starts with the end of something and continues. So it's an interesting uh, perspective on how you begin after the end, really, and not... um, I mean, the main event of the play takes place right away, and then you watch the repercussions. Now, you know, with smaller shows like this, I'm always interested, and I think a lot of, you know, this is where a lot of actors kind of start out and, you know, and working when they come to New York. And I'm kind of curious, both of you, did, did you get in through this through a straight audition, or was it through networking contacts, knowing the playwright, knowing the thing? Because a lot of times, you know, it's a combination of a lot of things to... It's true. It's true. Um no, I, I actually I answered an ad on Playbill, I think it was, uh, and submitted through, through Playbill.com. Um, uh, mine is much more personal. Uh, the director, Ian Crawford, I met last year when uh, my theater company and three other theater companies joined together to form a collective that ran a Shishama space on 42nd Street for six months. And my theater company being... It's called a monopoly, not a collective. (laughs) (laughs) My theater company is the Ate Theater Group, and Ian's is uh, Thirsty Turtle Productions. And we were actually very close, because I was the programming director, and he was the technical director. So we were kind of living with each other for six months. So when he said he was directing a show, I said I would love to audition for him. And that's basically how that happened. I had no idea. (laughs) Nepotism. No. No, but no, the, 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 <laughs> I am sarcastic. I'm, I'm just trying to make the point that there's a lot of ways that you have to forge a career, and it's about relationships. It's true, and, and it's hard, you know, mm-hmm. first, when you, when you, especially in New York. I mean, there, there's just so much work out there, and there's so many actors out there. And, uh, you know, you, you really have to learn how to market yourself um, without the help of representation straight away. Mm-hmm. You know? Do either of you have agents yet? I do. I don't currently. So will soon. I, I have. She's fabulous in this <laughs> show. <laughs> so uh, on that topic, like, you know, in two different angles on it, obviously, what are the hurdles in getting an agent as an actor in New York? <clears throat> God. Um, getting them to come see your work, you know? Uh, does that even really matter anymore? And I'm not being facetious. I mean, something like for, theater, for a commercial, for a commercial agent, they just want to know that you can you can speak and, and that you're you know cute and quirky mm-hmm. or, or or a bombshell or you mm-hmm. know they, they want to put you into that into that box. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as legit work goes, yeah, they're not going to send you out to to a casting director never having seen you act. Um, so yeah, they they need to see you see your work. Or that's how it happened for me yeah. anyway. What have been your hurdles? I'm assuming you're looking for an agent, so... Um, actually, it's not not a, a main focus in my life. I just don't like <laughs> chasing carrots. Um, I, uh, <laughs> no, no legi- I mean, that's legitimate. I have, uh, you know, I have my own theater company, so I work mostly on producing work, and then if there is other work that comes up in between that that I want to be a part of, then I'll pursue that. But I, I more look for projects and... Um, I would say casting directors that cast things that I, I feel right for, and personal relationships that have to do more with me being my own 
agent of sorts than, than looking for someone else. I think for me at this point to find an agent, I would really want someone who understands how I see myself is, is very important to me because I don't think that I come off it's really like a marriage. Yeah, yeah it, it, very much, it very much is, especially because that person is literally representing you. So if they're not representing you in the way that you want to be represented, then it doesn't feel good. Do either of you know any like horror stories of you know you know without naming names of the agent, but anybody who's like jumped into bed with the wrong agent, so to speak? And yeah, I mean that that happens all the time because actors. A lot of actors are under the impression that, like, your problems are over when you get an agent and all of a sudden the work's going to start rolling in. And that's not the case. Like, the only thing an agent does is a middleman between a casting director. You know, casting directors know agents who they, who they trust and will see their client, but, you know, you still got to book the job. Um, so, you know, a lot of—I I know several actor friends of mine who— uh, you know, early on in their careers, jumped right in with the first agent and just stopped submitting themselves, and and was like, my agent's going to take care of it. And it's like that's not the real world. It's New York, and you got to work for mm-hmm. work for what you want. Uh, what, uh, do either of you have like a well, what's your most humbling New York experience of realizing the the sea of of talent that you're competing against? Oh God. <laughs> I'm humbled on a daily basis. I mean, there's there's a lot of talent in this city. And, uh, you know, I'm humbled in our rehearsals because you guys are, are so amazing. I think the same um, thing. Oh, you're sweet. Um, humbling experience. I mean, when you... I was humbled yesterday. I went into uh, to, to a casting director who's, who's kind of big. And uh, I had just booked a job uh, two weeks ago through them, uh, a commercial. And so they called me in for another commercial. And I went in thinking, yes, I'm going to, you know, they like me. The, and I just sucked. It was the worst audition ever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, right, okay, right, I'm not... I still got to mm-hmm. focus, and I still got to got to work. So it's it's you get humbled mm-hmm. here. I mean, and yeah, I think you you kind of stay humble. Yeah, you know, and if I, you don't, like you're, it's over for you. Um, I think I, I've had many more horrifying experiences than I have <laughs> humbling experiences. Wow. And I think that that I, I mean I can't speak for anybody else's experience because I don't know that, but I feel like all of my scary, scary moments have stemmed from being a female trying to do this, especially when I was a little bit younger or right when I was done with school. And um, and people take extreme advantage of you. And it's hard because this craft is about using yourself. So when you spend so much time trying to learn to be open and trying to have faith and trying to believe and then it hurts through the core of your body. You have to keep going, and then it, it can screw with your instrument and what parts you're able to play. And maybe you can't play um, you know, a naive person after that because your body won't let you go there. Or it goes both ways, and you have to protect yourself as much as you have to be able to forgive yourself for falling into traps or not knowing that it was coming or for wanting to believe that the world was a good place. <laughs> it's well, we, we, you know, without naming names, I mean, we do have a lot of listeners of people who are still in college and maybe about on their way to New York, and you are a very attractive young woman, and I can kind of imagine possibly some of the things you're talking about, but without naming names, can you give some specifics of some specific things you maybe encountered or learned from to maybe help some of the people who are going to, like, step into the audition field for the first time in the next, you know, year or so? Okay. Um, yes. They're, <laughs> they're all very embarrassing, and I'll try not to cry. Um, 
You realize you're helping the, people. You know, the seriously. The first <laughs> one was... Um, the first one was when I was probably close to 18. I had just gotten here, and I got majorly scammed by a man that said he was a producer or voiceover agent. Or Now, this was close to 10 or more years ago, so I you know, kind of probably blocked it out of my memory, but he had a bunch of Disney paraphernalia on, and he said he worked for Disney, and I had a great voice, and he wanted to do all these things. I mean, long story short, he got like $400 from me, and before he left, he grabbed my face and kissed me. And then he ran, like ran before, like when the shock horror was going over my face. I didn't have time to call the police or find him. He was gone. Um, another awful, awful one was I was stopped on the street by a fairly <laughs> large director in this city who his films are cast by huge casting houses and well-known, and he stopped me, and he said, what do you do? And I kept walking because this was not as many years ago, and I had become it's on the street. jaded, <laughs> and it was New York City, and I was already thinking about my own life, and I didn't want someone to stop me. <laughs> Um, you know, as you do. And, and he started talking and he said, um, I, I write my movies, I, I create projects for people. And you walking down the street, you have a, a confidence and an air and simultaneous vulnerability that seems to uh, just attract story. Um, so would you meet me for lunch? And I, I looked him up on IMDb and Google and all of these things and made sure it was legitimate. And I met him and... As he was talking to me, and we met somewhere very public, and I was sitting there eating my fried calamari, and he started telling me stories about his life. Um, I don't know why. He probably was a little bit crazy. But he started telling me stories about his life and what he had done and how he wanted all of his movies to be about <clears throat> orgasms because he felt that that was when you... Having an orgasm and doing a lot of drugs and going crazy was the one moment that you jumped out of your brain. So he's telling me stories about his life, and he was telling me one where he was sleeping with two twins at the same time. And while he was telling me this, looking in my face, he was wiggling both of his middle fingers at me. <laughs> I went home, and I cried for days. And I imagined, like, grabbing a coat hanger and sticking it through his skull. And I couldn't believe that someone could take that much of advantage because at the time I had just left my agent. I didn't have anyone to call to be like, call this person. Don't deal with me directly. I had no protection. And I called him and I said, this isn't going to work. And he said, yes, usually theatrical actresses can't handle not having a script. And he made it my problem that I wow. couldn't do it. And those are only two stories. I have many, many, many stories. <laughs> but it makes it very hard to keep going. To be you able can to start a blog with, with all these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I try to forget them, usually. <laughs> So back to the the play Providence. Um, yes. Do you know anything? I, we don't have him here in, in Cedar, but have you had a chance to meet with the playwright? Is he pretty on hand for the show? Uh, no, he actually he lives in uh, Louisiana. Um, so I haven't even had email correspondence with him. Uh, but he's written a, a beautiful script that that is so lifelike and so real. Uh, the conversations that these people have are are beautiful and 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 the language that he uses is is wonderful uh have you had contact with him no 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 not not directly at all but i do know that when i express um difficulty working through a scene mm. or 
a moment, oh, I'm not sure how to get from A to B, I'll show up at rehearsal and there will be a new rewrite, yeah. new pages, new lines to try to address the problem. So it's definitely a, a working script. And Yeah, he's, he's very active. Yeah. Um, we got rewrites yesterday. Yes. Yeah. Is this the first, how much have you, the two of you worked on new scripts like this? Is the uh, I love working on new plays. Um, you know, uh, I, I did a show uh, with an actor who, who's kind of, his motto is that he doesn't like to do plays by dead white guys. And, <laughs> and neither do I, because, you know, there, there, there's a lot. There, I like to tell stories, and so many stories we've just heard over and over again, and I'm, I'm interested in something new uh, that, that relates to, to us right now, because I think that, you know, just, just culturally, we're in a, we're in a, a time of change and and art and music and theater um, help us get through that. I think. Um, often, I, I work on new new work often, and I don't know if that's by choice or just the way that it happens. But I do love it. So I don't know if I have anything more <laughs> to say about that. Yeah. All right. Well, it was it was a pleasure talking to you, Catherine Ekbad and Douglas. Ekblad. Eggplant. <laughs> I said it right before. <laughs> <laughs> they say it right the wrong. Sorry. And uh, Douglas Scott says Sorensen. I'm looking at the handwriting and it's Sovereignson, I swear. I know. <laughs> My handwriting sucks, people. Sorensen. Um, and the show is Providence. It's playing at the Times Square Art Center on the third floor. Uh, you got the dates? Yes. February 7th through the 24th. Uh, Thursdays. Fridays and Saturdays at 8 o'clock, Sundays at 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock. And uh, you know where people should go to get tickets? Uh, you can visit theatermania.com or through the uh, production company's website, mtworks.org. And it's only $180 per ticket, right? Mm. It's true. Mm -hmm. You know, we're less than, <laughs> we're less than Young Frankenstein. <laughs> $18 a ticket? Yes. Can't, can't miss that. And uh, thanks so much for stopping in. And Thank you. Best of luck with Thank your you. run. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up Volume 202 of Broadway Bullet. Remember, we are here every second and fourth Thursday of the month now as our new episodes on our bi-monthly schedule. Um, looking forward to a lot of things going on amidst all of this craziness of, of other production work. Um, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. We're going to have some great stuff coming up for you before the end of February. And uh, thanks for hopping on board Broadway Bullet. theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. 
All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.